We're studying the book of Galatians, chapter 2. We are in chapter 2 tonight. I look out over the faces of this uh, congregation a while ago when I was sitting up here just thinking about looking out over, you know, at, at you uh, and giving special thanks, really. Uh, some of the greatest people in the world are sitting out here in this auditorium. I, I really mean that. And some of the best people that I have ever met in my, in my life, I've met here. And I'm delighted to be associated with you. I'm, I'm grateful that, that God gives me that privilege. I think I want you tonight to let your mind drift back over the years to the people um, that were important to you when you began to break into Christianity. It might be that it was when you were just a little child in a Sunday school class. And there was this loving person there that helped you to uh, break into this new life called the Christian life. Perhaps it was during your teenage years when you were trying to maintain your identity or discover it, you know. And you were trying to uh, learn a complete new uh, vocabulary how to communicate, how to talk, how to live as a Christian. Or maybe you were an older adult when you broke into Christianity for the first time and, and you had to learn a lifestyle that was totally different from anything you had ever experienced before. And I suppose that there are very few of you who really decided to get serious about Christianity whenever that was that doesn't owe that to some degree to some special person or special persons who gave you a sense of confidence and helped you to break into this life of, of the Christian life. And their value to you and their worth to you is incalculable. I mean, you couldn't put a price on it, how important those people are to you. I hope that you have someone like that in your life. Maybe your parent, some parent, or some teacher, or some um, coach, or some Christian counselor. Uh, these people are somebody that you can look back on and just say, say, I'm just so grateful to God that they had confidence in me. When I first started uh, doing mission work in the Northwest, in Canada, Ann Murray was, um, you know, bursting on the scene as a popular recording star. She's written and, or she sings, at least, this song. I cried a tear, you wiped it dry. I was confused, you cleared my mind. I sold my soul and you bought it back for me. You helped me up and gave me dignity. You needed me. You gave me strength to stand alone again, to face the world out on my own again. You placed me high upon a pedestal so high that I could almost reach eternity. You needed me. I can't believe it's true. I needed you and you were there. I'll never leave. Why should I leave? I'd be a fool when I finally found someone who really cared. You held my hand when it was cold. You took me home when I was lost. 
You gave me hope when I was at the end. You turned my lies back to truth again. You called me friend. I hope you have somebody in your life like that. And think of the value of that if it still goes on, that there must be people who are trying to break in into the Christian life but don't know how to do it. There's got to be people still like that, just like you were. And they can't come up to you and tell you out and out just how lost they feel. That's the way it was with the Apostle Paul. Here is this man with this horrendous track record. While Peter and James and John are, are building up the church and slugging it out for the family of God, here is this man who seeks to destroy it. And he's on his way to Damascus to burn the earth with Christ. And he runs head on into God. He's born again. And so he took, takes three years and he goes down to Arabia to try to find and realize the plan of God for his life. It takes him three years to decide this is God's plan for me. And he comes out of Arabia preaching the gospel. And there are all these people who know about him and his past. I mean, he, they've heard about him. He's notorious. And when they heard, this man Paul is a preacher of the gospel, they said, no way. I don't believe that. Something's up. And so he wrote the book of Galatians. Now in this book of Galatians, there is the, the, what we've been looking at is this plot where he defends his authority as an apostle. But there is a subplot that underlies the plot, and that's what I want us to get at tonight. And that subplot is that in defending his right to preach, he leans on these people who support him and affirm him and believe in Him. For I'm absolutely convinced, it is my humble and accurate opinion, that nobody will ever find and fit in to the plan of God very effectively with much success unless He has somebody under there, uh, uh, you know, beneath there who is able to say, I believe in that guy, I affirm him, and I'll stand by him to the end. Now just a minute of, by, by way of review. In, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul uh, you know, declares himself as an apostle. He, has, he, he makes a statement, I am amazed that you're so soon to desert the Christian faith for some other gospel, which is not really another gospel. And he makes the announcement that anybody who preaches any other gospel, let him be, uh, let him be damned, let him be accursed. And he makes this acknowledgement that he's going to please God and not man. And he comes to verse 20 of chapter 1 and says, I am not lying, this is the truth. Now there are those who thought, in Paul's day, who thought that any, anything that was being said that didn't have the stamp of the apostleship, apostolic stamp upon it, of Peter and James and John was suspect. I mean, if it didn't have the endorsement of these great pillars of the church, it was suspect. And they, they must have th said, well, Paul's gotten this out of the sky. You know, this, is, this stuff he's doing is, 
it doesn't have any credibility with me. And so he writes chapter 2. And he says in essence in chapter 2, I want to introduce you, I want you to know some men who believed in me. Now I want you to be sure now, you don't miss the, the, the plot here, the subplot. The plot is that the Apostle Paul is defending his right to preach the gospel and he defends his right to preach the gospel by reminding them of these people who affirmed him and supported him and loved him and believed in him. And I want us just to remind ourselves of those people. First of all, to remind ourselves of those people so that we'll never forget to be thankful for them. And secondly, to see the value of affirming someone else. Okay? Especially... Is this important for you college and high school students? So we come to chapter 2, verse 1. Verses 1 through 10 is this summit meeting. Now they're getting all these people together. And uh, Paul brings to this summit meeting to try to find credibility and acceptance in the Christian church. He brings these companions with him. He brings Titus. He brings Apollos, not mentioned in this text, but in other places. And he brings Barnabas. Now Titus is a Gentile, and he brings this Gentile along with him as exhibit A, that God is working among the Gentiles. Now Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. He's already said that about himself. And he brings exhibit A, this Gentile, uncircumcised Gentile. And he's going to show in the you know, and demonstrate Exhibit A that God is at work among the Gentiles. I want you to see the man Barnabas. So you could turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. In a minute we're going to get to the text, but we're getting all this stuff ahead of time. Here is the runway, get ready to take off. So we get in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, verse 21. Acts chapter 11, verse 21. Look at this. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. A large number of people were being saved. Now, this verse is taking place, the event of verse 21, Acts 11, is taking place in the land of the Gentiles. Look at verses 19 20. So then they all, those who were scattered because of the persecution of the Rose in connection with Stephen um, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Gentiles, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus, now, there was beginning to be this movement within the, the movement of the Christian gospel of the Gentile conversions. It was a growing thing. It was gaining momentum. It was a new thing, new to Jerusalem, like the civil rights movement was new when all of a sudden down here in Arkansas we became introduced to the civil rights movement. Suddenly, they were introduced to a whole new world of things, Gentiles were being born again. Now look at verse 22. And the news about them reached the ears of the church 
at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced <coughs> excuse me, and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the, to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now the word Barnabas means son of consolation, son of encouragement. Somebody said, with, you know, with tongue in cheek, he was a man with an oily disposition. He kept the friction down. He believed in people. And if there ever was a man who could have pedestaled himself and climbed up on the pedestal, it was Barnabas. This man was looked upon and respected in the congregation of both Jew and Gentile as one of the leaders in the New Testament church. He's this guy who brought all of his possessions and gave the money to the, to the, to the disciples to disperse to the needy, but he didn't climb up on a pedestal. He brings in to Antioch, next verses, he brings Paul to Antioch. And Antioch becomes the sending church, and Barnabas says, Tidwell paraphrase, go get them, Paul. And all of a sudden, you have a church that is a sending church, and you have a man in this church who is this son of encouragement who stands behind the greatest apostle, the greatest preacher who has ever lived. Now, the point is this. What would we have tonight? What would, where would Paul be? Would there be a Paul if there had not been Barnabas and a sending church? If there had not been a Barnabas, if there had not been a sending church? You think about that a minute. Now, when we get to Galatians chapter 2, back to Galatians 2, he brings Barnabas and watch how chapter 2 develops. Now watch this. Here is this group of Jews, this, this assembly of, of uh, uh, Christians, Jewish Christians, and he submits to them, verses 1 and 2, he submits to them in, 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 in private, his gospel. Now there are some critics who are saying his gospel cannot stand the test of the discerning eye. So he comes with this message and behind the scenes he lays it out before them, before the critics and silences them with his message, his gospel. And if you'll look in verse 3, when he finished with this meeting with these Jewish Christians, they didn't even ask Titus to be circumcised. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot except it means this. That when he finished his message, laying out before them what he was preaching, they were so convinced that what he was saying was correct. They didn't even go, they didn't even bother to demand Titus to become a Jew in essence. But after verse 3, these false teachers begin to emerge. Look at verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to, in to spy out our liberty 
which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Now look at the Apostle Paul's response to false brethren. He said, But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Now, let me pause parenthetically to say, Paul has a way, a response that he, he had toward a weak brother. If you'll turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Romans sometime, the Apostle Paul says, when there is a brother in your, con you know, a weak brother, and what you're doing offends him or causes him to stumble, you are to surrender your freedom in order that you might not cause your brother to stumble. That's one thing. That's your response to a weak brother. To somebody who is stumbling because, or, or being made weak because of something you're doing, you, you might not see anything wrong with it, but you yield your liberty for, for, to them. But when it comes to a false brother, don't yield an hour. Now what he's talking about is this. And when you have somebody who is cross grains to the Christian gospel and, against, and cross grain to the will of God, peer pressure is what we'd call it today among young circles, peer pressure. Don't yield one hour to that so that the gospel right might remain with you. And what he's saying is this. He's saying that if you yield to peer pressure, then the result of that yielding to peer pressure is that the gospel is lost in that situation. Um, no matter how many times after that you try to stand up and give your testimony, share the gospel, if you yield to peer pressure, the gospel is lost in that situation. Mark it down, underline. Now verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows, shows no partiality. Now, they're big shots, but big shots don't impress me. What are you saying? Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. It means that they mean if they didn't contribute anything to him, as we understand it, they added nothing to his presentation. They didn't add anything to his, to his message. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, I want you to, uh, you know, give me your ear just quickly. Listen quickly. There were three things that led to the apostles' endorsement. And these three things, in my opinion, are the three things, three elements essential to a good self-image. Three things that led to their endorsement of Paul. And these three things are the three elements that are essential to a good self-image. 
I can say this without any fear of contradiction, that most of the problems I deal with in a counseling setting are problems that emerge, that arise out of poor self-images. Maurice Wagner has a great book, you'll want to get it sometime and read it, called The Sensation of Being Somebody. The Sensation of Being Somebody. And he says there are three essential components of a a good self-image. One is a sense of belongingness, that I belong, I'm wanted. The second is a sense of worth and value. Three things you have a good self-image. Now I can talk talk to you tonight about struggling with poor self-image because I've I've had that problem in 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 the past. So I know from where I from whence I speak. Now, when these men watch this. When he had these men who were willing to affirm him and believe in him, they did three things. First, they saw his distinctive contribution. They said, this man can speak to the Gentiles and we can speak to the Jews. They saw his distinctive contribution. Now watch this carefully. Everybody has a distinctive contribution he or she can make to life. Everybody has a unique contribution they can make. Doesn't matter who you are, how limited or how gifted you are, you do have a distinct gift or contribution you can make. Did you realize that what you cannot do is as much a part of your uniqueness as what you can do? So that how you're made up in the things you can't do and the things you can do are a part of your uniqueness and you have a distinctive contribution you can make. Now not everybody can sing like Shannon can sing. Not everybody can can teach or preach. Not everybody can, you know, can you know, even cook or sew or clean house or whatever, whatever the thing is. But everybody has a distinctiveness about their life. Second, now here's a here's a heavy here's some here's some heavy stuff. They recognized, secondly, they saw Paul to be as effective as Peter. Now, how did they see that when Paul had not done anything yet? And Peter had had three years of, with Jesus and years after that, and, and the Apostle Paul was a brand new Christian. How, did they, how could they see that Paul was effect, as effective as Simon Peter when he had, had no history to that point? Well, here's the answer. The answer is, is that you cannot compare yourself with another person and draw evaluation as to your worth on the basis of comparing yourself to another person. You're as valuable as the next person if you never do another thing. Now the problem with some of us in our problems with self-image is that we're always going around comparing ourselves to somebody else. Let me tell you, you pick out somebody 
you compare yourself with them, let me tell you, before you ever name their name, I'm going to tell you, you're as good as they are because you have that value before you ever compare yourself. You know what I'm saying? All right, number three. Is a sense of being competent. Competent. Now, the amazing thing in verse 9 is, is that they recognize the grace given to me, said. They recognize the grace given to me. And not only was he, he's not just talking about the grace that brings salvation, he was talking about the charismata, he's talking about the grace gifts. And what he's saying is this, is that whatever, whatever you have in, with regard to ability, you have because God gave it to you. And if you have the ability to you know, sing, if you have the ability to, to prophesy or to, uh, to administrate or helps any of these charismata gifts, gifts of grace, it is because God gave them to you. Now, if God gave you a gift, that makes you as competent as the next person because every person has what they have because God gave it to them. You know what I'm saying? I thought you'd be giving high fives to one another. I mean, this, this is liberating stuff. Now, where does this poor self-image come from? You remember where? You remember when you were a kid, you'd go to the county fair? You ever been to one of these sheep circuses that came through? They have these sideshows. They always have the house of mirrors. And you go into these mirror, in these, in these rooms here, you pay extra money, and you go in this room, and they got all these mirrors, and they make you look funny. You know, you look you know, distorted and crooked and sometimes fat. Well, I look at I look fat when I look in any mirror, but you <laughs> you look you look fat when you're skinny. And 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 you know you, you know, where would you get out there and you laugh and you talk about how funny you look because of the the house of mirrors. Now you were seeing yourself according to the curvature of the glass, right? You were seeing yourself according to the curvature of the glass and you got a distorted view of yourself. Now watch this. You know where you get this goofy idea about yourself? This distorted view of yourself? You get it from what you grew up with, what you heard your parents say about you, what you what your teachers, what you perceived your teachers said about you, how you perceived what others were saying about you, and all of a sudden you got this distorted view of yourself on the basis of the curvature of somebody else's glass. Don't believe that stuff. And that's why it makes it so important how we respond to other people in, in affirmation and, and encouragement. Because here is somebody that comes, comes into my life and, and he has this view of himself that's distorted because of the curvature of his environment and childhood. And, 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 and perhaps here is a person who just loves him and all of a sudden he, he sees mirrored in this affirming, loving person this acceptance and this love, and all of a sudden he sees that mirrored image of himself and he begins to love himself. That's what happened in Galatians. And that's why it's so important 
that you be an affirming encourager? That makes sense? Now, let me give you a definition of acceptance. Acceptance means that you're valued just as you are. It allows you to be you. Not, you're not forced to be someone else. Aren't you glad? It means that your ideas are taken seriously. If I'm accepted, my ideas are taken seriously. You just can't imagine how great it is to, to preach to this congregation. I can get up here and say goofy stuff and cut up and you don't, you don't reject me. And I, I can get up here and stumble around, you know, and you still, you take seriously. Well, I, it's, it's great. Acceptance means that, that you take someone's ideas seriously. You, you can talk about how you feel inside and, and you know that, you, that, that, is, that they won't reject you and you're safe to be you. You won't be judged. You took my hand when I was cold. You took me home when I was lost. You gave me hope when I was at the end. You turned my lies back to truth again. You called me friend. And Paul wrote this in profound gratitude. And you should be too. Let's pray together. Our Father, help us to understand that there are others around us who could become, who have the potential become great men and women if someone will just accept them and affirm them and encourage them, help us to be those, those kinds of people. And thank you, Father, for the people who are in our lives that we count that way. Barnabas. And Lord, I pray tonight for the kind of trust makes the fellowship, a body, a family of affirming, loving people for the rest of our days, for I pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you tonight, give consideration to these invitations. Has somebody been encouraging you to become a Christian? They're, they're saying to you, hey, this is it. Wouldn't you like to do that? Maybe it's grandmother or granddaddy or parents, teacher. They just kind of been giving you a little nudge and saying, honey, I want, sweetheart, I want you to give your heart to Jesus. They're interested in you. Why don't you do that tonight? Some friend, some neighbor, give your heart to Christ. They're praying for you. Maybe you want to come tonight to say, I, I sense in this congregation an acceptance of love and I, I want to join here. I want to be a part of this. I want to be... I want to put my membership here, my life here. Uh, maybe you're a college student or someone else that has that need or whatever God leads you to do as we stand to sing. We're not going to tarry long, so you'll need to come on the first verse as we sing.